Welcome back to the show, you radical health beauty. Today we have Taylor Collins in the studio. Taylor is a force of nature and his brand force of nature, as well as building epic, selling epic, Rome ranching, regenerative agriculture, pushing back against some of the narrative of why the future should be plant-based. No, not here. The future should be regeneratively raised meats. What an epic conversation. We have callers talking about how to get started. We talk about all of the lessons. We talk about raising children closer to nature. We talk about bison harvesting, biodiversity, soil health. This one is so juicy. Sit back, sink your teeth into this. Let's get into the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Got a pretty special episode for you today. I have Taylor Collins in the studio live. The man, the myth, the legend. Heck of a story, brother. But before we get into all of that, how are you doing today? Thanks for taking the trip. Couple hours away, right? On Rome Ranch. Bro, I only have a sweet 45-minute drive to get here. Oh, dude. Yeah, we're practically neighbors. We're neighbors. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. All right. So maybe I got to get over to Rome Ranch because what you guys are doing over there is incredible talking to a couple of our staff here, um, the bison harvest, everything you're doing to regenerate soil, the whole mission, the whole story, full circle from veganism to bison harvesting to everything in between. It's been a wild ride, man. Tell me that. What's going on? Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, first of all, feel incredibly grateful and blessed to be at this point in my life where I am, feel very settled in. And um, thank you for having me here today, being a part of this podcast and this journey with you is cool. Um, yeah, I think my story is not necessarily unique in the sense that um, I've iterated throughout my life and I feel like uh, I have had to die multiple times to be reborn and each time to be reborn better and bigger. And I think that's a really healthy, natural cycle. And so today, where I see myself today, if, if, I could have, like, if you could have come to me in a dream 10 years ago and said, Taylor your life will be on a bison ranch or however yeah, right. cool accent is. I'd be like, this is a nightmare. Get the hell out of here. That's never <laughs> going to happen. But, um, but it's a reality. Yeah, man, that, that thread, because obviously you're much closer to life and death now in, in a very literal sense. You're, you're living on the land. You're raising animals. But this proverbial life and death, these miniature cycles we go through in our own life to be born into something more true and meaningful, what do you think has guided you on that? Because it's, it's, it's been, like you said, surprising. So what's your kind of guiding light? What's your anchor to just keep trusting, keep being willing to die so you can be born into something more true? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and, you know, first of all, I think when we talk about this, the cycle of life, which is being born and then living and then death and then the decay process, which that all happens uh, repeatedly, you know, one way to look at that is, is how energy flows throughout the universe. And so um, energy is always cycling. Mm -hmm. you know, it can either be created nor destroyed. It's just always transferring. And so the way that I see kind of my evolution is just being receptive, being willing to um, align myself with the people that provide the energy that I feel is a guiding force for good. Um, and really just trusting my instincts and my gut. That's how we've always lived. Um, I think experts and consultants are kind of bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, it, to me, they're, they like remind me of these dudes who are kind of a little bit scammy, like, like they want to help you find the love of your life and mm -hmm. teach you how to date a girl, but they've never had a girlfriend. Yeah, right. Um, it, it's kind of this weird dynamic. And so for me, it's just always kind of come down to trying to hone in 
uh, on my own instinct to do what's right and what's wrong. And, and I felt that's actually been a pretty strong guiding force and the higher level of health and consciousness that I have, the clearer it becomes. How much of that has been fine-tuned putting yourself back into a life that's more connected with nature versus a life that X amount of years ago was probably more the classic concrete jungle kind of life? Yeah, the, um, the connectivity to nature has always been something that my wife and I have shared and enjoyed. And for so long, we would go on these wonderful trips, these backpacking country, you know, camping trips, and we'd just feel so good. And our heart and our soul was so nourished. And then we'd come back to the city and it just felt like a part of us died a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so there was this like dynamic where we had to be in the city. We were growing our own business. We had responsibilities. Um, but we knew that there was always a calling get, to get back to the land. And so we were first generation land stewards. We, we didn't have access to family land growing up. We didn't have any kind of um, history with agriculture as far as part of our personal culture. And so for us, it was really just um, when we started visiting ranches and farms, which by the way, I encourage people to do. I think we have this weird thing where we go on vacations and we go to these like really nice spots. We should be going to really beautiful spots, but some of us go to like cities, big cities. And for us, we always said like, what if we go to on vacation and we go to farms and ranches that we support and then That's we cool. purchase our products from. And so it was kind of that journey is going to places like Bluffton, Georgia, White Oak Pastures that mm. changed our life and said, you know, this is this, it, this, it, these guys have figured out this is the highest calling. The highest purpose would be to manage land, be on land, co-create with mother nature, and then also feed a community. Yeah, that's really powerful. I like that reframe of what a vacation might look like, you know, and uh, going to do things that are, you're passionate about, of course, which it might be nice sometimes to go to Cancun and drink margaritas on the beach, but like to put your feet in the soil and see life and, and rekindle that relationship is something that I think we're all naturally drawn to. I believe that that is our original home, that we came from there. And now we unfortunately have to take vacations to go back into nature instead of living in and on it. But we are an extension of nature. So this, this kind of took you on a wild journey. And I know that Epic is a brand that's very well known in this space. And for you personally, I feel like it's kind of in the rearview mirror a little bit because you built this thing, you, you sold it, now it's transitioned on. But how did you guys get into that? How did you build such a monstrous brand, a positive monstrous brand like Epic? Yeah, that, that's a funny journey. You know, um, leading up into the creation of Epic, we were plant-based eaters for a long time. And so we had kind of made one of those dramatic pivots in our life. and started reintroducing animal protein and it was just a game changer. We could never look back. So we, we had this opportunity to create a product that really was for Katie and myself mostly. Mm. It's kind of for selfish reasons. We were going on, you know, hundred mile bike rides, training at really high levels for Ironman races and all the sugar, carbohydrate rich, highly processed protein powders. We were just done with that. Mm. And so we were packing bacon and, and um, ribeyes and different meat in Ziploc bags and other packages and bring it on bike rides. And, and so for us, that was like this game-changing moment in our life where we said, this is a product that's right for us. Surely there's someone else who has the same experience and same need. And so we kind of went on a whim and, you know, we like this whole idea of uh, fake it before you make it, you know, just kind of like showing up. We showed up at the biggest trade show in the United States for the natural foods industry. And we had this package and the package was just like product that wasn't real. We were sealing it in our house mm -hmm. with like an, with an ironing press. And uh, we just showed up like with ultimate confidence saying, this is going to be the most badass product that 
any retailer could ever have on their shelf. And we, when, when we got to that show, we were, you know, like it was like 5,000 vendors, 4,999 of those vendors were plant-based companies. Cause this Cost. at the time, plant-based equated to health and mm. natural foods. Meat was not meat was on the periphery, always been demonized. And we were ready for just some psychopaths to come up to the booth and throw fake blood at us or something like that. <laughs> but the, um, but the overwhelming reception was just so powerful. And I remember leaving that trade show, just telling Katie, like, this is it. Like, this is our calling. This is our purpose right now. We need to just go as hard as we can, put our heads down and focus and kind of make some sacrifices at that moment just so we could achieve a greater um, accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And we just went fast and hard. At that show, we had the opportunity. We met face-to-face -face with the CEO of Whole Foods mm -hmm. and uh, looked him right in the eyes and said, of course, we can deliver this product to you in three months at a national level. And Katie's like, what the fuck are you doing? That's, that's impossible. Um, but again, you know, it, it, when there's a will, there's a way. There's a way. And so we, we figured it out and we just had this cool opportunity to do something very different and consumers were ready for that change. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, the first time I learned about Epic was at Paleo FX years and years ago, um, probably seven years ago at this point. I think you guys were still kind of in your infancy. And I was like, this is incredible. There's options now. And, you know, since then more, uh, it's becoming more accepted that this animal-based, you know, uh, regeneratively raised meat thing is, is maybe not the monster it's been painted to be. But I do want to focus on that for a second, because if you were doing all the right things, you were plant-based, you were vegan, you were running triathlons, what, why, why did you all of a sudden start packing bacon in a Ziploc bag and taking them on bike rides? What happened? That sounds <laughs> like uh, there's, there's a missing piece of the puzzle there. There, there is. I skipped over an important part. And, and that was, again, on our own journey. Um, we, you know, I, I was in school training to be a physical therapist and had a lot of nutritional sports science um, education along the way, undergraduate degree in that. And the conventional wisdom and narrative at that point in time, again, this is like over 10 years ago, was just if you want to achieve the highest levels of success as an endurance athlete, you, you need to like cut out meat, you need to cut out fats, you need to really go plant-based and go heavy with carbohydrates, carb loading and eating sugars and sugar-like products. And so you see that, like you see all these professional triathletes 10, 20 years ago, they're emaciated, they're skeletons, yeah. they look like shit, they look sick. Um, and we just kind of got looped into that, that circle. And maybe that was, I mean, in retrospect, that was probably the first time we learned that like this overarching dogmatic narrative that's given to you um, by a higher entity or by science should always be questioned and so it took a couple years where i think our bodies could tolerate that until mm. everything collapsed and specifically i i feel like my wife was um like decaying mm. inside we talk about the cycle of life it was, it was just nasty but she had terrible um systemic inflammation autoimmune reaction couldn't train specifically she had a knee that just swelled up to the size of a watermelon for months had exploratory surgery was told she needed arthritis medicine for the rest of her life she's oh, like wow. 21 years old she's, oh wow she's a healthy lady and we saw every health practitioner across every spectrum of medicine you could imagine and um and in that whole process we were thinking like okay we must not be eating clean enough so let's transition not vegan enough <laughs> yeah from vegetarian to vegan ah shit things got worse hold on let's go a little bit more extreme let's go plant-based vegan like, mm. or sorry let's go like juice vegan like raw yeah juice. like the raw macrobiotic like, all of those God. terms yeah yeah and i think i think um you know like in retrospect we went to one health practitioner at the very end of this long and painful journey and he you know first minute of this evaluation he just said tell me about your diet hmm. and we're like 
don't worry about this doc. We can skip over this. We are so dialed in. We're going to impress you with how we eat. And this dude right then, I mean, he put his notepad down. He was like, this is over. Like one minute into this interview, I know what's going on. And he said, you need to get rid of all that raw food shit. You need to reintroduce healthy pasture-raised grass-fed meats into your diet. Cook your vegetables if you eat vegetables, but mm. you probably don't need to eat that many vegetables. And for us, we were at such a point of desperation. We didn't have another alternative, you know, like well, back up against the wall. And so we changed our lifestyle and our diet. And I mean, years of symptoms resolved in weeks. Wow. And, and it, it, a way I always think about it too, and Katie, my wife is okay with me saying this because it's true, but she, if we would have stayed on that plant-based trajectory, she would either be dead at this point in time, she would um, either be in a wheelchair or um, maybe even had her leg amputated, which that would be kind of cool to have a wife with. <laughs> An amputated leg, we talk about that. I would Especially put a bison, a bison bone rancher it. with one leg. That would yes. be pretty badass. Because you could make it, her peg out of a bison bone and it'd be pretty, pretty it would, dope. It would be pretty dope. What a crazy story though, man. And thank goodness for that Dr. Widsom. It wasn't Dr. Paul Saladino or Dr. Sean Baker or something, was it? <laughs> man, those guys were, were um, that was a little bit it was before. Before, them, yeah. yeah. They were wow. like out in the forefront public, but shit that, yeah, that knowledge didn't exist at mm. that point in time at any kind of scale. It wasn't the conversation that people were having. Yeah. So yeah, it was very early on. Uh, this just happened to coincide with kind of the evolution of paleo. So when yes. we launched Epic, Paleo FX was in its first year. Yeah, right. It was in Austin. We were in Austin. So we're like, yeah, let's go to this show. Yeah, wow. That's crazy. I often think about like, especially when you combine the intense plant-based veganist kind of movement with uh, high-level athletics too, you now know, I'm sure, you raise some of the best protein in the world that the body needs protein. And in a sense, in a, in a kind of twisted way, the vegan body gets its protein by breaking down what's on the skeleton. You know what I mean? It becomes an animal-based diet, but it's just chewing through the tissue of self. And that's that, you know, deterioration. And then you have all the gut issues because goodness knows how many, you know, plant toxins you're exposed to and the, the pesticides and the herbicides and the leaky gut and the inflammation. Oh, so yeah, I'm absolutely. very glad that you guys kind of... I mean, know, even to take that thought to another level, it's like, yes, you're extracting, you're mining your own stored resources to stay alive on that diet. But the food in which the land on which that food is grown from is also extracting yes. all of the natural resources from that. So that diet, in a sense, is just extractive. And at some point in time, it will always collapse, whether the landscape collapses or the human body will fall apart. Yeah, it's a good, uh, it's like a good full circle moment of this like idea of, you know, the dystopian planet of the vegans, row crops as far as your eye can see, this monocrop future. And the kind of like monocropped diversity inside of the human body when it's not getting the bioavailable nutrition from animal meats and fats and organs, there's that systems break down without biodiversity. And I know that's a big part of what you're trying to do now with the soils and how that, you know, impacts the foods that we eat. So we, we, you, you kind of take the red pill, as it were, you, you reclaim your health. Now you're looking to package this stuff and give that gift to other people. Epic grows probably at a rate faster than you ever could have imagined because you are just following something that's aligned and you're stumbling forward and you're figuring it out. How many years is that epic story through the, you know, the growth of that and the sale and then moving on to the next chapter? Yeah, the epic growth happened pretty quick. I mean, like being here today brought back really good memories being in the heart and soil office because like our, our early epic offices were houses too. Yeah. And it's just such a good vibe. It feels so right. It's just so much more alive and personal than like a sterile office environment. Yeah. And so this, this is where it's at. I hope you guys remember these days. It's like some of the best days that you're going to have in this company's growth, growth and evolution. But um, yeah, we, you know, Epic was, went, it blew up. 
um, I remember early on, we were always ranked in the energy bar category. Mm. And so like we would get this data from retail stores nationally. And, and we were like, early on, we broke into the top 10 products, like any bar that you could ever buy in the United States, we were top 10 and it was our bison bar. Mm. And it would, and it always looked like peanut butter, chocolate, peanut butter, chocolate, peanut butter, chocolate, peanut, bison, peanut yeah, butter, right. chocolate, peanut butter. And there's like all these different brands. And so the bison was like the peanut butter and chocolate of the carnivores. And uh, it just kept climbing, climbing, climbing. We early on within the first, uh, honestly, six months, we exceeded the available supply of grass-fed bison mm. uh, in North America, which shocks some people, but that supply is very small. Only about um, 10% of all bison are truly finished on grass. Mm. The other 90 are confined in some capacity and supplemented with grain. And so that's a disconnection with consumers. So early on, we, we had to stop selling our most... Um, our highest praise, most popular item. And that, that was like a really weird dynamic too. Yeah. So not sell a product that everyone wanted because the supply chain just wasn't there. But that was a big opportunity for us to use this company to restore, impact more grasslands, get animals back on pasture as they were intended to. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you, you guys ended up branching into all kinds of different products. I know my wife to this day, was talking before we we hit record we have a three and a half year old at home my wife is heavily pregnant another one about to join the tribe and she makes these uh you know animal-based chicken nuggets we get truly pasture-raised chickens then she gets the epic pork rind she blitzes them up dips them in an egg wash fries them in tallow oh my god they're so delicious <laughs> you know so bringing in different products and stuff was a huge part of that story what do you think made Epic stand out, though, amongst the crowd? Like, what was the catalyst? Obviously, there's a need there, but you guys did a lot of stuff right, I think, and did it really well. For you, reflecting, what do you think really made it stand out? Yeah, I think er early on, it was just the, the differentiation of the product, um, the unique nature of it, and um, the, the branding, the packaging, the yeah. marketing of it. I mean, like, you're going into this aisle of the grocery store where... I mean, it's just like colorful packages. Everyone is just shopping based on what's the cheapest item. Mm. And it's hard to stand out. And so we, you know, we had this package that had these anatomical, beautiful historical illustrations of these animals. Uh, and that was a, a really important part of the journey was to create that in a way that honored these animals mm. and then connected consumers to the reality that in order for them to sustain life and get nutrition, that there is a sentient being on the other side that sacrifices its life. And, and so that was something that, you know, early on the experts were like, you guys are idiots. Don't do that. Do not pursue that. People do not want to see the face of an animal that they're going to eat. Mm. Um, and so, you know, following your instinct, challenging that idea, we said, this doesn't feel right. We think it's actually a, an obligation for people who eat meat to understand and have that connection to that animal and to that source. And so, you know, just having that on the shelf day one. You couldn't walk through that aisle and not pick it up and yeah. say, what the hell is this thing? Yeah. I've never seen or heard of any nonsense like this. And then you pick it up and you're like, oh, damn, that sounds pretty good. Let's try this out. That's super cool. So then you, you know, all of these themes that you're kind of bringing into the product, like prioritizing quality, supporting regenerative farmers. Did you at any point know that this was the world you were going to end up in? You know, like, because eventually you come to sell Epic and now, you know, we're going to get into the next chapter of the story with Rome Ranch and Force of Nature and everything you're doing there. When did it start to bubble up that, all right, like, well, we're, we're going to do this. Why don't we become the farmers and the ranchers? <laughs> what happened there? Yeah, you know, it was, uh, we, we visited all of our suppliers with Epic early on. We spent time, we, we knew the families, we 
established relationships with these people. And uh, every time we'd go out to a farm or a ranch that was managed holistically or regeneratively, um, you know, just taking your shoes off and getting grounded there was the most powerful sacred experience. And um, again, we just, it was just a moment of such clarity in which we said, if we ever have the opportunity to do something like this, this would be our highest calling, mm. you know, like this would be achieving everything we ever wanted to achieve in life. And so through selling Epic, um, we were able to realize that goal and that dream. And so when we sold the company, um, you know, we could have uh, reinvested in the stock market or some other bullshit schemes. And we decided to put everything into land because mm. land for us is like the truest value. And it, it gives us the freedom to live a life that we want to, but also to procure food for ourselves and our community and then do so in a way that is actually beneficial for the land and can restore all these broken cycles of nature. Um, and so Rome Ranch right now, that's, that's our goal. That's our mission. And a big part of that also is bringing community out to experience and to learn what that looks like. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that too. The, some of the, the events that you do out there and the harvests and things. It, it feels to me like because you ignored the experts, um, you know, good for you, thinking for yourself, trusting what's alive in you that you were able to do something that was in alignment. And when you do that, money's not perfect, but it's about one of the best systems we've got right now for conveying value. And I, I like to reframe it sometimes as like green energy and the green energy that you got for building a product that served a need that then you got and took back. And instead of doing bullshit, like throwing it in the stock market, you said, how can we give more energy back? And how can we keep the cycle of that flowing through the cycle of life, through the cycle of rehabilitation of soil and through bison of all creatures, these big somewhat scurry monsters for people that don't understand them but also like really soft gentle wise like spiritual wild animal so you you've now you've acquired all of this energy you're gonna do this we're how soon in the process is is right we're gonna do bison instead of well let's start with cows or let's do sheep or let's do you know what else yeah again i think it goes back to getting grounded looking at what your community needs what's available um and then doing something that's differentiated and something that feels right for us. And so the, the conventional wisdom is you're fucking crazy. If you raise bison, those mm -hmm. things are wily. They'll tear down your fences. They'll mess up all your equipment. They'll kick your ass if you look at them wrong. And, and all those things are true um, unless you co-create with them. And so you work alongside them and you, you meet their basic biological needs. Mm. And so for us, you know, bison was, it just made so much sense. It, I kind of always felt like it was, somewhat of a, a spirit animal and how we lived our life there's a lot of wisdom to learn from a bison like running into a storm mm -hmm. that is a fantastic lesson that everyone should embrace but um bison for us too they're they're native keystone species so they're the largest ruminant animal native ruminant animal in north america they are the architects of our most fertile food system so like mm. all those states that begin with the letter i uh like that we monocrop with industrial agriculture constantly extracting mm. so like indiana iowa illinois idaho those states were created the fertility there was gifted to us through large herds of bison and other mm. ruminant animals and so for us to bring a keystone species back on a landscape in which it had been removed about 150 years ago no one else in our area is raising bison it was a really exciting opportunity to see how that animal interacted and in, in what capacity of forgiveness mother nature could could grant us yeah it's it's uh 
a term we use a lot on the podcast is the remembering, like kind of remembering what we've forgotten. And I think bison are a beautiful representation of that because they've been here for a long time. They're a native animal. They're an animal that's got such power and mystery. I'm curious what it's like to actually stand in the presence of one of those. I've heard you tell stories where you've been charged, you've looked them in the face, you've saw the horny bulls, you've saw it all. Like, the, What's the just the magnitude of the presence of that animal? Because I've only been blessed to see them from afar. I'm kind of curious what it's like to be up close and personal with one of these wildebeests. Yeah. Uh, so they are Ice Age creatures. Yeah. And um, they are absolutely, they're not predators, but they are the apex species out there on the, the prairie or the pasture. And so when you go into their space, they are allowing you to be there. Mm. And so we found that the energy that you put in to that experience is the energy that you're going to take out of that. And so if you come nervous, anxious, afraid, the animals pick up on that. They're mm -hmm. highly sensitive, highly reactive. And so um, I think when you go with that open heart and that reverence and that respect, complete different experience. The animals are calm, they're curious, um, but they're massive. Mm -hmm. um, they, they can kick your ass. Like when you go into uh, Yellowstone National Park, you know, you go to the park ranger's office, you pay your entrance fee and they have a rolling video of um, patrons getting attacked by bison. Just scare you away, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just like you are entering bison territory and there's this one that's just so, I mean, I've seen it myself, but there's one video that stands out where there's like this morbidly obese dude. He's like 300 pounds, just so big. And he's taking a selfie with a bison. Oh. And you think like, yeah, that guy's huge. Like a bison would probably maybe, I don't know, like not totally destroy this guy. And it picks this dude up like he's an infant and throws him 15 feet high into a tree. I mean, this poor guy. And he's like, if he was your size or my size, we'd just stick in the tree. But he just cracks every branch falling down. I mean, oh, it's, no. it's horrible. But that's what you, but I think that is the reality and the respect that you need to give those animals. Mm, yeah, definitely. The, the, the reverence of like, I, I, li I li really liked what you said about the energy. I do think animals are tapped into a different kind of intelligence, maybe because they never left nature like we did. Maybe that intelligence is in us too, if we return to it. But it sounds very much like you are doing this in a very honorable and co-creative way with the bison. It's not like, you know, well, we own these now and they're just a price tag in itself. It's, it's, it's something more. It's this rehabilitation of soil. And we've already thrown out a couple of these terms like regenerative agriculture, holistic grazing. And in a, in a, in a world where some of these terms can become like buzzwordy and greenwashing is a very real thing, like how do you define that? Like what, what even is it for the listener that's kind of new to this? You know, what is regenerative agriculture? What is this holistic grazing, rotational grazing? Why, why are bison so pivotal in this story? Sure. Um, so bison are, are just kind of like the original architects and it's not anything special to bison. You can manage any ruminant animal in the image of a bison. Mm -hmm. And so historically that would have looked like the predator prey relationship where these animals were in high density um, for protection. Um, but through that high density, they got really uniform grazing, really evenly distributed grazing, high concentration of cycling of those nutrients through their manure. The landscape got positively impacted, but they were also hunted by all these predator species and mm. they didn't want to hang out with hundreds of thousands of pounds of their own manure. Mm. So those animals were always moving. And so you can take that lesson and you can apply that to your own individual context. So it's not necessarily bison are this magical species that's a regenerative being. They are, but I think all ruminant animals have that capacity. Yeah. And so that's even just a mindset difference. Like we don't call them our livestock or are animals they are regenerative beings they're co-creating alongside us with all of nature too mm -hmm. so we have you know the animals that we 
intentionally put up on our ranch. And then we also have wildlife that's abundant and they have a very important critical role. But back to your kind of question about regenerative agriculture, really, for me, that's looking into Mother Nature for guidance and for wisdom. And all land globally has been extracted from for at least 100 years. So all land is only operating at a very small percent of its productive capacity. And when you regenerate and you restore land, you come to an ecosystem and it's very contextual. So you look into your eco region. What was this farmer ranch once hewn from? Was it a woodland? Was it a savanna? Was it a grassland? And you start thinking, what are the cycles of nature that allowed that system to operate at a very high functioning level where you weren't constantly putting inputs into the mm. system? And so, you know, when I think about this, I think about fixing the cycles of nature that have been broken through chemical industrial agriculture. So the energy cycle, the nutrient cycle, the water cycle, the carbon cycle. There's so many cycles that probably we don't even understand. There could be an mm. energy cycle. Yes. Um, and, and so that, that's kind of the way that I frame. And then truly, you know, that's regenerative agriculture. To do that at the highest level, I think you need to be a regenerative being. I think you have to adopt that in your own life. So are you, you know, are you looking at your life holistically? Do you recognize that every relationship you form, there's going to be, um, like you'll never be acting in isolation. You'll always be impacting other people. Like this is a living system that we're all a part of. Are you taking care of yourself? Are you nurturing yourself spiritually, physically, mentally? Um, and, and I think in order to fully express that highest level of regenerative land management, you have to be embodying it yourself. Mm. Or otherwise you're just kind of like, there's a, there's a disconnect. There's a disassociation. Yeah, you're like that expert again that says, I'm going to teach you how to find your dream partner who's never been in a healthy marriage, right? Like Correct. integrity, walk the walk. And I think that was beautifully said. Are you, are you worried about the future of our soils, about the future of our environment if we do not adopt more regenerative practices? You mentioned a lot of this extraction of soils and feeding a lot of people certainly has uh, consequences. Is regenerative agriculture the solution? You know, I think um, the, the regenerative agriculture, it gives me greater hope than any other path moving forward. And just some examples of, of things that I've seen on my land. But at the end of the day, what I've realized is Mother Nature's capacity for forgiveness is so much greater than our own species capacity for destruction. And that gives me a lot of peace um, because we used to think that it would take 500 years, you know, science and um, academia was advocating 500 years to build an inch of topsoil. That's simply not true. Hmm. There's pioneers in the space like Joel Salatin, Will Harris, who have built three, four inches of topsoil in 10 years. Oh, that's insane. Wow. So, you know, like that's hard to wrap your head around, but it's, it's almost like, you know, we have like all these beautiful live oaks out here and it can take 300, 400 years for a live oak to really achieve just this phenomenal status. But what if I told you, you could plant a seed and then in 10 years, that live oak would become a 400 year old live, hmm. live oak. I mean, that is like, the, the stretch of faith and, and the opportunity that Mother Nature gives us when we put those cycles back into operation. And so I think just as inspiring as it is for humans to really reclaim their own health and their own journey, overcome tremendous obstacles in the face of modern medicine, heal themselves through really fundamental basic things like food and lifestyle, the same applies to land. Mm. And so if you, if you have hope in knowing all these stories of people that have changed their lives for the better, that is directly applicable to all of our landscapes with the right mindset. Yeah. It's like, uh, I love wordplay and soil is so close to soul. 
and humus is so close to human and it's just this very cyclical interchange between the two. I guess one of the common pushbacks, I guess, or confusion points for people around regenerative agriculture is it's not scalable. It's, it's, is that true? Is there any truth in this idea that regenerative agri agriculture is not scalable to you know, reverse what we're seeing? Yeah, I think, I think that narrative is absolutely being driven, again, by experts and by scientists that have conflicting interests hmm. um, that, no surprise, is connected to the you know, pharmaceutical agricultural industry. Yeah, and so the, the truth is and the reality is that right now on our ranch that we've been managing for almost seven years, we can raise three times more animals per acre than anyone else in our county. Wow. Um, we have more wildlife than anyone else in our county. We have better water infiltration. We're, we're, springs are literally emerging out of rocks where water mm. never was or where water had been hundreds of years ago. And so for me to think about feeding the population, if, if I can take an acre of land and now make it three times more productive in seven years, shit, that's a pretty good start. And I also think about when, when we have this conversation about feeding the population, I, I really think we begin to feed the global growing population when we learn how to feed ourselves mm -hmm. in our community. And then we already figured it out from there on. Mm -hmm. um, it's replicable. So mm -hmm. I don't think regenerative agriculture is about scale, like getting bigger. Each producer needs to get bigger enough to feed the world, but it's about contextually, how does everyone have more uh, independence and freedom with their own food production? Yeah. And it certainly starts with awareness, right? And choices and options. And I think because of the point you alluded to about the conflicts of interest and misaligned incentives that this isn't going to be a top-down change. It's not going to come from big daddy government, big mommy farmer. They're not going to come save the day. It's a grassroots movement. And what would you say it would be like kind of a call to action for the consumer or the person that maybe, you know, could start growing something like where, where, where could somebody start to even just kind of live this I, instead of just going to the store and buying the regular raised meats of course you've got stuff on the shelves which is supporting that is there anything people can continue to do in their own lives to just continue to step into more of this regenerative identity yeah i, I you know there's a bunch of powerful ways people can become more connected i think that connection is the key i think being in relationship with nature is where it begins and so um, we've always advocated, like, if you're an omnivore, if you're a carnivore, the highest way that you can source your nutrition is, is to hunt it yourself mm. or to produce it yourself. But the reality is that not everyone can do that. And so that's where companies like Force of Nature exist. Um, we think there's better solutions. Um, but I also think that, you know, with industrial chemical agriculture, kind of like a standard way food is produced, we have such a huge disconnection with the source and what a farm or a ranch actually looks like. And so I think it's something like 2% of our population now is farmers and ranchers. The other 98% of the population has nothing to do with the production of their own food, wow. which is mind blowing. And then you look at that in another way and it's like, you pull people on how many folks have actually been to a ranch that um, they purchase food from, it's less than 1% of the population. Wow. And I think that disconnection, that lack of relationship is the biggest driving force that's allowing this perpetual system, this dysfunctional system to erode our civilization and erode our landscape. So it's being more aware. It's being more conscious. Mm. It's, it's going out, meeting your farmers, shaking their hand, mm. introducing yourself, um, but then also introducing yourself to the earth in whatever capacity you want. Go outside, get grounded, be quiet, um, talk to a tree, just touch it, feel it, breathe it in. Yeah shake the hand that feeds you, right? And, um, you know, rekindle that relationship. I think 
sometimes in more of the domesticated human sense to say introduce yourself to the land talk to a tree ground your feet can feel a little woo right a little esoteric and i often say like feeling is believing i live on five acres and one of the first things i did when i got there was you know introduce myself and and set my intention that i'm going to try and work with this land to to heal it from some of the things that were done it was logged of the trees and it's very you know the classic stuff that everybody does and i think rekindling that relationship is is key and if you're at a phase in your life right now where you live in a New York City, at least go find the farmer's market, at least vote with your dollar where you possibly can, because incentive drives out outcomes, right? And awareness can change the incentives and hopefully we can change the outcomes, which I think is is what we're trying to do here. Um, and I'm curious about, you know, the connection to food pieces on, on one hand is, you know, knowing where your food comes from is incredible, but to come like really full circle on that, you actually harvest on the land you you bring people in to witness that you know some of the people from heart and soil have witnessed that and just talked about how much of a spiritual experience it is how transformative it is what's that been like for you to you know raise these animals and eventually then you know pull the trigger and harvest on the land and, and what's that taught you about the real connection to food the full you know kind of closure of that loop yeah absolutely i mean one of the kind of pushbacks that we we will hear time to time from like that plant-based uh, community is how can you say that you have reverence and love for an animal while simultaneously taking its life and it's just such a weird question because like my first reaction is well what do you think i should do have no relationship with the animal that i'm about to harvest to feed myself do you think i should uh desecrate it do you think i should just see it as uh as an income producing entity a widget and so i think that's a really strange idea but for us um you know food waste and in the United States, it's just like such an atrocious, terrible pro problem. So even when we're talking about like, how do you feed this global population, which is kind of an annoying question that always gets asked of farmers and ranchers. Um, but it, it's like, stop wasting so much fucking food. I, I don't know if you, if you, I think like I've heard 40% to 60% of mm -hmm. all food is wasted in the United States, thrown in the trash can. And so it's one thing to, you know, disregard some kale you're not going to eat. But in my mind to throw away animal protein from an animal which was a sentient being that had a community that had children likely out on the landscape um took multiple years to raise created a positive impact on that ecosystem and then to harvest it to nourish your body but throw it in the trash can i think that's such a terrible mm -hmm. desecration and so for us to bring people out to the ranch community members many times this is the first first time people have ever seen an animal transition into death and it's the most powerful transformative experience they can have. And it's just so beautiful to watch. We're very clear, like stating our purpose and our intention of the event. No one pull out cell phones. No one film this death. Like we want you to be right there with that animal, feeling everything that comes up. And it's really, yeah, just like a, a return, a coming home to something that's greater, which is a greater ecosystem and universe, a soil system to which we're from and which we belong. And there's, tears being shed and they are not tears of sorrow or sadness or regret they're tears of gratitude they're tears of unleashing something within people that have been dormant for a long time and um, it's just such a beautiful mixed community you would think that the people that are coming out for these events they're like maybe you and i like the heart and soil crew and the, the hardcore fans are there and they show up with like you know a gallon of raw milk and they mm -hmm. want to mix blood in it and drink yep, it yep. and eat organs which is so fun but then there's also, you know, like 70 year old, hmm. you know, grandma and grandpa who have never seen an animal die before. And it just shatters their reality and it changes their purchasing power. And 
and their decisions from that moment forward. It's hard to go back to supporting an industrialized system. And it's also changes their perspective and their reality of where they fit within that system, connecting to that cycle of life, that cycle of energy. But ultimately, like, we're not wasting any freaking food. Mm-hmm. This animal, we're celebrating in its full capacity. You know, we're going to use the bones. We're going to make jewelry with the bones. We're mm-hmm. going to use the hide, the skull, the organs, the meat. Nothing goes to waste. And so that's really this mindset shift, this paradigm shift that we hope to accomplish all those events. Yeah, it's beautiful. What have you seen from the mourning process of the buffalo? Because I've heard some pretty cool stories about when one of them transitions, the, what the behaviors of the animal are like. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's just such a, a beautiful, inspiring moment to reflect. And so we'll go out there and there'll be 40 people, strangers for the most part, in a trailer and we'll get them within 100 yards of the bison. And, and this is the most amazing part is we have a herd of about, it fluctuates from 100 to 150 animals, depending on the rain. And we'll go out there and we'll have a list of five animals. And typically there'll be like a three-year-old male. And um, within this herd, I'd say 75 to 75 plus percent of the time, the animal that's on the list will separate itself from that herd, walk towards the crowd, Hmm. look at everyone in the eyes. And I mean, this is like 75, 50 yards away. And then we have a shooter and everyone knows that's the animal and everyone's quiet. Everyone's present. And then that animal gets uh, harvested. We shoot it in the head and um, its heart is still beating and it drops instantly. Its sentience is gone. And the rest of the herd will come up to that animal. And there's some release of energy, some kind of expansion that we can't perceive as, as humans. But the bison, they see it and they feel it and they take it all in and they all go up to that animal and they nudge it, they lick it. Um, they take a moment and then they cycle out and the next group comes in. And it's just so amazing. Like if you saw a drone shot of it, It'd be the downed animal completely surrounded hmm. with animals that are licking it and talking. And, uh, and we'll give them five, 10 minutes to really process that transition and to mourn that animal or whatever's happening with that energy expansion. Let them realize that. And then we'll, mo- we'll move the herd. We'll open up the gate. And it's, I mean, this is cool too, because this is like the cycle of life. It moves on. Like mm-hmm. that herd is now going to positively impact and continue to enrich our landscape. Um, the bison that is down, it served its biological role. And, and now it's serving its next role, which is to feed our community. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, people, people come up to that animal. And um, this is a, a new tradition that started uh, two years ago. But there was a kid, you know, you cut the jugular because the heart's still beating. So everyone puts their hand on the animal. Everyone says some kind of thank you or, or spends a moment to appreciate it. And, uh, and some little girl a couple of years ago just put her fingers in the blood and drank it. And everyone there was like, this makes so much sense. No one was shy. Everyone went in. And so now we do that at all those experiences too, which is just so beautiful. And it just shows so much reality and respect. And I think when you're in that moment, you're overwhelmed with so much emotion that it's easy to numb your body and and separate yourself from that very moment. Um, But when you put the blood in your mouth, it's like getting slapped in the face. You wake Mm -hmm. up again and you return. And, and it's time to get to work. Mm-hmm. Like something switches in your epigenetics where you're like, give me a knife. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing, but I kind of know what I'm doing. And, and it's beautiful because people are picking up knives and they're like instinctively going in there. I mean, you have to remember our ancestors were doing this with yeah. primitive stone tools. So we have the luxury of using knives. And, and everyone works together communally to, 
to extract the meat, to debone it, to grind it, to take it home, and and really honor the animal throughout that whole cycle and, and consuming it. It's so cool. Yeah, the cycle and the circle, the fact that you said they, they, they stand around in a circle and then you guys gather around in a circle, it's just very, very symbolic. And Noelle here was saying when she tasted that blood, it was like the the best, like just boost, slap in the face, like coffee but better and just like wow like so much power in that because yeah the like you said the machinery is still running the the spirit's gone wherever the energy's gone but it's so incredibly powerful and then the celebration of of eating that and the legacy of the bison lives on in what it did for the soil and how the bison then becomes you and you can now express your highest form of health and go about doing you, you know the the best work and you know maybe you reflect on like you know, like you said kind of scarily that if you never awoke to the problem of you know the, the vegan path that you was on that would you be able to even have the life force and the power to spread this message and that these animals play a, a role in that which is really cool and very cool that the tradition started with a child because maybe they've got a little less baggage and they're a little more tapped in and they're still in that you know space where they remember and it's just like a very curious yeah thing for them to do and i know you've got two girls that you're raising on the farm and I'm curious what that's been like, you know, you know, raising girls closer to nature, raising your family on nature. How are you, uh, you know, teaching them this stuff? So it's just, so they're just so connected and it's so normal for them instead of having it be like a normal person hearing that story might be a little jarred, right? They might be, oh, wow, you know, drinking blood and shooting it in the head and giving people <clears throat> knives and hacking it. You know, it's a little bit jarring because we've become so removed from death. So I'm curious how like, you know, this has been for you raising children in that environment and teaching them the ways of life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's uh, one of my greatest joys to get to share this experience with my children. And so I have a six-year-old named Scout and a two-year-old named Ren, Ren, W-R-E-N. Um, and, you know, like they, you know, we talk about like the remembering for us, but they never forgot. Yeah. And there's so much wisdom to take in from a child. And at all of our animal harvesting, you know, classes or educational experiences, it's always a child that steps up and elevates the experience mm -hmm. and sets the new standard every year we well, the first year we did turkey harvest we didn't no one wanted to actual pull the trigger second year uh, like the first boy that went up was like can i do that part hmm. everyone started doing it the year after that some little girl was like can i go catch my own turkey everyone started doing that so kids are like just this amazing force of clarity and, and connectivity and there's so much wisdom to learn from them and one of my favorite things to do with my daughter scout is um we'll go arrowhead hunt Mm -hmm. because it's just so cool to be outdoors moving slowly be really in tune with your landscape connect to it but also connect to the civilizations and the people that were there before you and um something that she taught me doing that was like we have two different very different strategies so i'm moving across the landscape i'm pretty confident but i recognize that like if you had to define how i focus on the land it's like laser focus i'm yeah. like wearing binoculars you know 30 zoom uh where my kid She's like a bison, like peripheral mm -hmm. vision, eyes on the side of her head, really wide field of view. She's on the ground moving like a Texas armadillo, painfully slow. And I'm just kind of like blitzing across. And I mean, there's so many times where Scout has found these artifacts that are just absolute world class, could belong in a museum. Wow. And I, I, I stepped on them, you know, minutes yeah. before she found them. And, and, and so, you know, she loves imparting some wisdom with me and one of the things that really stuck was she's like dad you're doing it all wrong you suck at arrowhead hunting <laughs> it's like okay i guess i do kind of suck because i'm getting dominated by you and she said here's what you're doing wrong so so i want you to get on your hands and your knees and so i got on my hands and your knees and she's like i want you to talk to the earth so again like 
She said, I want you to talk to the earth. I want you to tell the earth why you're here and what we're looking for. It's like, watch this. And she, All right, I'm here with my dad. I really want him to take this opportunity to learn how to connect at a higher level. I mean, like just so much wisdom coming out of a six-year-old. I'm like tearing up, you know, as she's doing this. And, um, and she's like, okay, you're done. Like you've passed through this ceremony. Now you're ready to, to engage with a landscape at a higher level. You're ready to find arrowheads. Mm. And she's so spot on. There's so much wisdom there. And I think the reframe of being able to humble yourself and see that, yeah, you know, you're going to have to teach your children something, but more than anything else, they are our teachers, right? That's what I'm learning firsthand too. And to hear you recount that story of, yeah, she taught you. She said, dad, you suck. You got to humble yourself and get told what to do by a little, little child that you created. And it's such a trip, but it's such a beautiful trip. That's amazing, man. Um, I do want to, I do want to talk about like pushing back a little bit against the prevailing and dominant narratives you you had a you had a post um let me find it here eating meat is healthy sustainable and ethical that's like kind of a controversial statement in our little echo chamber here we all get that but i would need you to defend that because according to the common wisdom eating meat is healthy no 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 what about this red meat is terrible for you it's certainly not good for the climate right cow fats and burps and all of this stuff and ethical you're, you're a monster you're taking the life when you don't need to so how would you kind of defend your position there? How can you say with such, such confidence that eating meat is healthy, sustainable, and ethical? Yeah, that's interesting. And um, I, I volunteer. We have this really cool community school in our neighborhood. It's called Heritage. It's a private school. And they empower their seniors, so they're like 16 to 17-year-old kids, to have a thesis. And they work on it for a whole year. And then they bring in people from the community to sit with them and really listen to it and challenge their thesis. And every time, it's sad that this happens, but there's someone who's like, plant-based diet's the only way to do it. If you eat meat, you suck. You're like, you're missing all these things, exactly what you said. And so I'm in the room with these, with these uh, young adults. And the first thing, and it really the only thing that I need to say is, so have you been out to a farm that grows plants? And they're like, well, actually, no. So, all right, well... <laughs> you know, how can you make this assumption? How can you make such a strong statement and have such a strong position if you've never actually put your feet on the ground for the system in which you're advocating for? Um, and then likewise, have you ever been out? You, sh you haven't been out to Rome Ranch. Have you ever been out to a ranch that's regeneratively raising their animals? No. And so really that is, that's where it all begins. That's where you really defend that argument is, is, is say, you need to see it for yourself. And it's like, well, is it, seeing is believing or is it believing is seeing mm -hmm. you know it, it when you get there it is hard to argue and <clears throat> one of the the things that we've been kind of using as an example is we'll be out on the pastures with the bison and we'll kind of like say all right this is what an acre looks like like kind of draw it out for someone to see we'll say in this acre of land there's a billion sentient beings co-creating in nature there's a high degree of biodiversity this ecosystem is functioning like a billion that's kind of hard to wrap your head mm -hmm. around so we'll say like all right here's here's what here's how you can do it so like a ream of paper printer paper 500 sheets like inch and a half so like what is what is if you can say a billion sheets of paper what does that look like and that's paper stacked up 300,000 feet high mm. and that is what you're looking at in a system that is teeming with life that is a system that you're participating in mm. with animals in nature's image it only happens with livestock um and then you could take that same example to a farm field and you can see this. It's, it's just so clear. 
that there is a fraction of a percent mm. of the life that is happening in that field. Everything has been decimated. It's been turned into an ecological desert. You've removed all habitat. You've removed all food resources. You've broken the water cycle. And if that's not enough to kill or move all animals off that landscape, you also spray poison on mm -hmm. the plants and on the soil. And so it's like this connection, this reality, this is what industrial agriculture is intentionally separating us from. They don't want you to know this. They don't want you to see this, but it becomes abundantly clear when you slow down and you go to any farmer ranch that grows a monoculture. Mm. Yeah, it's completely missing the forest for the trees, right? Just because we've become so imbibed by this, this narrative around it, I guess, are so hyper-focused on that it's cruel or something else. And I think actually there'd be a lot of crossover with our narratives around we don't want to support, uh, support caged animal feeding operations either. You know, we're not saying go out and just buy your conventional race stuff you know, where you can support these farms. But this biodiversity piece, I think, is, is very often missed. And this what that's going to do for the long-term impact of feeding people. And if, you know, God forbid, I would say we ever end up in Planet of the Vegans, we're not going to be able to do that without mass production of synthetic fertilizers, chemicals, herbicides, rodenticides, etc. What is biodiversity in a nutshell? You said it's, it's teeming with life. What, what is that life, the soil in the life? Like, how do you define biodiversity and how does regenerative systems, you know, like blow it out of the water? Yeah. So, um, again, when you look into the architecture of nature and you, you know, like you can do this, I can do this, the listeners can do this, like close your eyes, think about the most beautiful place you've ever visited in your life. And, you know, some people take a moment and they'll say like, oh, I remember when I, I was like in a coral reef diving, or I remember like when I went to the, the jungle in Costa Rica, like the rainforest. Um, and the places that people recount, maybe Yellowstone, something like that, are the places when you really back up and you say, why was that the most beautiful place you've ever been to? It's beautiful because there was so many living organisms all co-creating with one another. Um, nature will never in a functioning state, have a monoculture. Mm. She's always fighting a monoculture. That's why chemical industrial plant agriculture has to use tools like mechanical tools and chemical tools to control a monoculture, to dominate mother nature. And so biodiversity is everything. It's a principle of soil health. It adds resilience to your system. Um, even if you raise livestock, you can think about biodiversity of the species that you raise. You think about the biodiversity of the species in the soil which, you know, I'm sure you've heard this before, but a single tablespoon of healthy soil has more living sentient, you know, more living organisms, we'll say living, so we don't have to, to define if that's sentience or mm -hmm. not. More living organisms than all humans on the face of the planet since the mm. starting of time. And so that is teeming with life. We only know a very fraction of a small percent of what's actually happening in there. And so um, when I think about biodiversity, I think of resiliency. And, and another really quick example is like for every um, undesirable pest insect or species that might be a problem in an ecosystem in a functioning ecosystem there should be 1400 predator insects mm -hmm. for that and so what happens when you come in there and you're spraying your insecticides is you are nuking the entire system you're resetting it and it turns out that the insects that are more undesirable are the ones that are most resilient and so they're the ones that perpetuate and that dominate after that cycle so again it's just the resilience in in the the balance in which Mother Nature created homeostasis is all foundationally based on biodiversity. Is it safe to say that you cannot rehabilitate broken soils because of these egregious practices without animal husbandry and agriculture? It's 100%. Yeah. And that's, um, I feel like people were shy or nervous about saying it for a long time. Maybe they still are, but like 
there is no such thing as a plant-based system that is good for the planet. It is 100% founded upon extraction of nutrients and domination of mother nature. There's no other way. So if you go to Whole Foods or natural grocers or Sprouts, if you are shopping produce, you are supporting a system that's an extractive system. Because think about it, you're literally taking something from the landscape and what are you putting back on that landscape? Over time, if you extract money from your bank account and you never put more money in your bank account, your bank account will collapse. Same mm. thing is happening to the ecosystems. So the only way to heal that system is, again, look into the architecture of nature. Mother Nature created these abundant fertile food systems with animals and plants. But when you remove animals from the systems, like keystone species like bison, everything suffers. The mm. plants suffer. The plants turn out they need that animal impact to stimulate the growth of roots, to stimulate the growth of grass blades, to cycle um, oxidized carbon material back into the soil to feed the biology. The anatomical design of a bison hoof actually helps aerate soil, allows rainfall hmm. to go in, air to circle or cycle. It allows um, seeds to germinate. And so it's so dysfunctional to think that without that animal, the system could survive is just such a separation from reality. The only way that you do that is with chemicals, mm. which is, again, always fighting that cycle of nature. It's almost like nature knows, right? It's almost like there's some kind of intelligent design to this thing that's been happening for as long as we could even fathom. And you know that when we try and come in over the top and be so smart with our lab coats and synthetic stuff that we probably break some shit in the process. Yeah, and it's not even... There's that element to it where we need to be completely honest and say this plant-based system is 100% an extractive degenerative system. But on the other side, we need to say that animal, that ruminant animal, that is a sacred entity. That mm. is a gift from the source in which we can heal our landscapes. And so what does it look like to celebrate it? And right now we're demonizing it. And so really one of the things that I want to change that narrative is just empower people to say that's bullshit. That doesn't make sense. Like animals like bison, cows, sheep, goats, they are the highest level of a gift to restore and heal landscapes. Yeah, awesome. You're giving people options. You're putting stuff on the shelves. You're inviting people out. You're teaching, you're educating, you're coming on podcasts, you're spreading the good word. Tell us a little bit about Force of Nature Meets because we've name dropped it a couple of times that we haven't actually talked about what that is. Yeah, um, so we started a company called Force of Nature after uh, Epic and um, Really far too long, we have recognized that farmers and ranchers have disproportionately had to take the, um, the blame for the consequences of our extractive chemical agriculture. And um, it's already hard enough being a farmer and a rancher. I mean, like the, uh, the amounts of depression and suicide rate in those industries, is, it's greater than almost any, any other industry you could look at, even veterans of foreign wars. Mm. And so you have these people that have this... Um, connection to land, land, typically it's multiple generations. Uh, they're connected to a small community. They're in high levels of debt and a high level of stress and their kids don't want anything to do with it too. And so you're taking this community and you're blaming them for all the environmental degradation that's happening and governments across the world are starting to now say, Hey, we need to regulate those farmers and ranchers mm -hmm. and tell them what they can and cannot do. And by the way, animals are something they should not be doing. And so for us, it's mind boggling. And as a, as a company, we want to say like, hold on. Consumers are the ones that should be looking at themselves in the mirror. Consumers are the ones that have not only allowed this system to be perpetuating, but the ones who are actually fueling that system because they're expecting products that are cheap and abundant and available year round without 
any consideration to the consequences otherwise that are felt on the land and the rural landscapes and the communities. And so force of nature was really this, um, this idea, this spirit to re-empower consumers and change that narrative and help them feel comfortable and confident purchasing meat in a way that not only is good for their own body, but good for those rural communities, good for those landscapes, good for those families, and can create large-scale positive change. And, and so that's, that's why we started Force of Nature. And we ship meat um, nationally. Uh, we also ship meat. We, we have meat available at retail nationally, which was really fun when we started four years ago. Um, our first meeting with, our, with a, a primary large food retailer, they just said, this is absolutely insane. No one wants this. And literally looked at us in the eyes and said, people already think our bison is grass fed. So if we put your bison right next to them, then they're going to know that for mm. 10 plus years, we've, we've had a shitty product that's kind of been greenwashed. And, uh, and so that was like our first forte into getting this product on retail shelves. But slowly, we feel like we've been able to, to motivate and incentivize and uh, have people align with their values to how they purchase meat. And um, this revolution, it's only starting. Yeah, it's really exciting. And so force of nature is growing, um, but we just want to be that, that national ability for people to purchase meat in a way that aligns with their own spirit and soul. Love it. Yeah. You, you, I think you're spearheading this to a large degree. And you mentioned some other names that are really spearheading it too and paying it forward. And I think we might have even touched on this, that the average age of the farmer in the US is 58, 60 years old, and it's kind of like a dying art. But, but with messages like this and conversations like this, and you know, you know, being on the younger side, and me to a much lesser degree, you're not going to find my meat in stores anytime soon, but taking the power back and homesteading and finding land, I think it's becoming more of an appealing option for people again. And I just want to thank you for that. And it sounds like you're you're jazzed up about the movement, of course, because it's the future. You've got children. You want them to inherit good land. What excites you and, and, and what is next? How do you continue to just keep paying this forward? What's, what's coming from you? What's coming from Force of Nature? What's coming from Rome Ranch and this entire mission? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, one of our biggest efforts that we put forth every year is we, we host a, a large conference um, at the ranch in April. And it's, um, it's just legendary it's world-class we have speakers from all over the globe coming this year we have uh, people from australia speaking we have people from mexico speaking and these are people that are telling the stories of um nature's capacity for healing and uh the event's called the what good shall i do conference it's uh there's about four, we cap it at about 400 people and um what happens there is just absolutely sacred like how we come together the topics that we approach, but then the hope that is gifted and shared amongst everyone, you know, people leave that conference and they quit their jobs mm. and they change their lives. They change the trajectory. Um, one really cool example. I mean, there's so many amazing examples, but last year there was a handful of people from our community, which was really neat because we live in a rural, very conventional community. And um, this lady came up to us afterwards and said, I've always wanted to have a summer camp for children and I've always wanted to teach them about gardening and I'm going to do it this year. And sure enough, she followed through with that. Let's and go. Yeah. She had four camps this year and our daughter went to all four of them and they were like, how do you compost? How do you build so soil health? How do you create pollinator habitats? I mean, like this is catching on and it's fueling the next generation. It's just providing me with so much hope. And so, I mean, bring it on. Let's keep going. That is so good. 
We're going to transition into a caller for a second, but you said a key word here, and it's the what your podcast is named after. So my last question for you today is, where does hope grow? Okay. Yes, sir. The, the podcast is called Where Hope Grows. And, you know, I, I feel like hope grows for me in different areas every day. And so it's always evolving and it's always changing. But right now, where hope grows for me is friends and family members who have had to deal with tremendous um, medical issues their whole lives. Um, particularly a good friend of mine out of San Antonio area um, was morbidly obese. I mean, this, he was 300 plus pounds, um, couldn't fulfill his highest potential of being very depressed, suicidal. Um, and he changed his diet and he changed his lifestyle. And this guy now is such a high functioning contributor to society, such a happy man, beautiful wife, two beautiful children, his career, his pathway. Now he's a part of the water conservation district and his area. So he's advocating for soil health as a way to recharge aquifers, uh, maintain our natural ecosystem, what the hill country's so beautifully known for. And uh, this man was, was on a trajectory and a pathway to not experiencing that, not mm. being fulfilled in any of that. But with the simple idea of healing his body through food and through lifestyle, he's, he's just was reborn. And so that's it. I mean, it's, it's our ability to, to die metaphorically and be reborn as something greater. And it's the power of story, I think, that unlocks that for a lot of people. When they see you do it or they hear a podcast, it gives them permission to do it too. So thank you for being an excellent storyteller. Thank you for helping us to continue to tell this story. And hopefully we get a lot more people reversing the tide of the decline in health and going with the dollar and supporting amazing brands like you. But we get to speak to one of those on the line right now. It, it, it appears we have Ashley, who's a Texas native, who's got a question for you, Taylor. Ashley, are you with us? What can we help you with? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, I just wanted to first say thank you to Taylor for you know being a pioneer in this regenerative movement. Um, I've been a fan of Forces Nature for a while now, and I remember when I would see on the shelves and you know think to myself, I really wish I could you know budget for that and, and include that in my grocery cart. But um, now I'm really excited to be able to do that, and I've made an intentional effort to be able to include Forces Nature in my grocery cart and you know, vote with my dollar. So thank you for making that a possibility. Oh, absolutely. You're a champion. Yeah, you're a force of change. So thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. So my question is actually about how individuals who, you know, don't have access to land or don't own land, how can they make a positive impact on, you know, regenerative systems and help build a future that we want to see, especially for, you know, the future generations? Yeah, that's a terrific question. Um, you know, I think the idea that you have to be a farmer or a rancher to create change, it's not, it's not accurate and it's not inclusive because there's only 2% of, uh, Americans have access to farm and ranch land. And so that's not a reality to make this a, a large national or global movement. And so, you know, I'd start with just some really basic foundational concepts of better connecting to earth, to to land, to source, whatever that might look like for you. Um, and if that, you know, that can be going out to a park, um, going out to a, a sit spot, which is a spot that you find peace in and nature and reflecting. I think that's something that we could all do to slow down and really just take in that wisdom and that inspiration that is before us all the time. 
if you have the ability to, you know, most people have a yard or most people have a porch um, or a deck and there's always opportunity to grow something. I think there's such a magical experience in taking a seed and caring for that seed and nurturing that seed and putting your hands in the soil every day and forming that relationship with that plant. That that's a that's a tremendous place to start. Everyone should be able to do that. Um, and then if you kind of wanted to go a little bit bigger, you know, there's a book by a man named Gabe Brown. It's called From Dirt to Soil. And in it, he talks about these um, five principles of soil health. And the, the beautiful thing about those five principles is they're ap applicable to any context in any land across the globe. And so, again, these are kind of like rules uh, from nature, the architecture of nature. And so I would look at that book. And if you have the ability to influence maybe your yard or maybe a local park um, or just kind of celebrate and share that message, I think that will get you more connected to this movement and being a part of the change that is that is happening. Love that. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Ashley. Thanks for calling in, Ashley. Thayla nailed that. I'll just put a little bow on it by saying the fact that you're even asking this question is very hopeful, right? Like the, the fact that people are even thinking about what they could do and the intention is all we could hope for because that will slowly ripple out. So keep being rad, keep being awesome. Ashley, Taylor, this has been an absolute pleasure, man. It's been it's been a real treat for me. I've been following this journey for a long time and been, you know, making my animal-based chicken nuggets with your products, following, chowing down on force of nature meats, supporting the movement, and to, you know, sit down here is another one of those full circle moments. For so thanks for joining us, man. Tell tell everybody about where they can find you. I do want to tease the audience a little bit. We have a kind of like a mini feature documentary coming out on you as well that's going to go live in middle of October that follows Taylor around the ranch and a day in the life and it's beautifully put together by the team so that's coming in mid-October you got to keep your eyes peeled for that but where can they keep up with you in the meantime like where's the best place to keep up with all the things you're going yeah the, um, head over to roamranch.com and um, we have an event calendar on there and it's stacked I mean this is the time of year fall is the most glorious moment in Texas and so come out to the ranch, participate in a bison harvest, harvest your own Thanksgiving turkey with us. We have really cool educational classes. We have farm to table dinners. So, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm there at all those events with my wife and our ranch hand. And I mean, really just looking to celebrate this collective community and get to know each and every one of you that's interested in it. And thank you personally, but also uh, have you join, um, join us and accelerate forward. Heck yeah. And if you want more Taylor Collins deemed to the brain dome through your ears, you can uh, find you chatting away on a podcast too. What's that called again? Remind us. Yes. The, the podcast is called Where Hope Grows and awesome. it's uh, Force of Nature. Um, put that podcast on and it's really specifically diving into these topics that we've been discussing today, but with a greater um, audience of farmers and ranchers and land stewards and what that looks like from everything from someone who manages 200,000 acres to someone who has a backyard garden or, or growing herbs on their porch. Thank you for everything you do, man. Thanks for coming out. Thank you to the listener. Let's keep paying it forward. Big love, brother. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next time. Thank you. All right, friends. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Radical Health Radio. We got a fresh new podcast for you every Wednesday. If you enjoyed the show, consider liking, subscribing, reviewing, and rating us on your podcast platform. It helps to spread this message of radical health. We'll see you next week.